Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. It's the 5th of June 2020, the 205th anniversary of Waterloo is 13 days away and here at the Napoleon Assist I'm marking the occasion, despite the lockdown, with a huge programme of exclusive content for you to enjoy, laugh, cry and learn. Between now and the anniversary I will be releasing fresh content every single day. I have 10 interviews lined up for you with experts from around the world, looking at all angles of the battle, the wider campaign, its significance, its myths and its legacy. There'll be two podcasts solely from me, outlining some of my thoughts, and most excitingly of all, on the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th of June, that's the four main days of the Waterloo campaign, I will be releasing 41 readings of eyewitness testimony, one of if not the largest oral history projects ever undertaken from the Napoleonic Wars. Those readings have been recorded by people from across the world. Some are historians, others enthusiasts of the period. Some are even ancestors of those who fought at Waterloo. You can catch it all right here on The Napoleonicist. And that's just the start of the Waterloo Remembered programme. Because on the 15th to 18th, I will be live tweeting about what was happening on each significant moment 205 years ago via my Twitter account at ZWhiteHistory. You can follow it all using the hashtag WaterlooRemembered. Crucially though, I want you to get involved. Remembrance is a personal process. What are your thoughts about Waterloo? Why does it matter to you? Do you think it matters? Have you been to the battlefield? If so, share your memories, thoughts and photos using the hashtag WaterlooRemembered. 
Do you have a question about the battle? Great. If so, post it either on Twitter using that hashtag or on the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net. Most exciting of all, we will be holding a memorial service delivered by Reverend Stephen Fletcher, who led the memorial service on the Waterloo battlefield for the 200th anniversary. That will be held at 11am UK time on the 18th of June, and you can all attend for free by watching the live stream of the service via the YouTube channel of the Waterloo Association. Coronavirus may be keeping us apart physically, but that does not mean that it has to divide us mentally and emotionally. Waterloo should still, and will still, be remembered. And it all starts right here, right now. For the first episode of the series, I think it makes sense to lay the foundations for what will be discussed in the interviews over the coming days. Lots of people think they know the story of the battle, which is often dominated by Wellington's perspective. Many more actually know very little about the battle at all. So this episode does the groundwork for you, taking you through the events of the battle, the key turning points, and some of the misunderstood elements, so that you know what we're referring to and when my guests make references to specific episodes of the campaign, as well as introducing some of the areas of discussion that we can then explore online later. So this is episode one of Waterloo Remembered. Waterloo, what's the real story? Only a handful of history's battles have iconic status. Waterloo is one of them. Despite being one of the most written about battles in history, much of the Waterloo story is misremembered. While we often refer to the Battle of Waterloo, we should really refer to the Waterloo Campaign from the 15th to the 19th, not the 18th, the 19th of June 1815. Over those five days, four battles were fought at Catrebras, at Ligny, at Vavre, and, most famously, at Mont-Saint-Jean, which is the one more generally referred to as Waterloo itself. Yet Waterloo should never have happened. In March 1814, Napoleon had abdicated as emperor as a result of the Allies successfully invading France in the War of the Sixth Coalition. He was exiled to the Mediterranean island of Elba and initially threw himself into reorganising the civil administration of his new kingdom. Within months, however, he'd got a bit bored and dreamed of returning to France. Napoleon's mind turned to regaining the throne at an opportune moment. The French people had rapidly become disillusioned with the restored Bourbon monarchy, which had been reinstated on the French throne by the Allies after Napoleon's abdication. Meanwhile, tensions had begun to emerge between those Allies of the Sixth Coalition, as each nation sought to gain the maximum amount of power from the peace negotiations that were supposed to follow Napoleon's fall from power, whilst also searching for a lasting peace settlement and dismembering Napoleon's empire. It wasn't a, a situation that was likely to end particularly well. And with that unifying threat of Napoleon's dominance of Europe having been removed, there was a very real possibility of them falling out and warring with each other. On the 26th of February 1815, Napoleon seized his chance, evading the British naval force that was supposed to keep him imprisoned in the isle, on the island through a blockade, and he landed in southern France on the 1st of March, with a force of just 750 men, those who had made up his bodyguard in exile. It wasn't an imposing force, yet actually it turned out to be enough. 
because all of the forces sent by French King Louis XVIII to capture Napoleon switched sides and joined the Emperor, the most famous example of those being Marshal Ney, who is said to have vowed to Louis that he would bring Napoleon back in an iron cage, only to resume his position as one of Napoleon's foremost marshals. Louis fled Paris as it became clear that he did not have the numbers or the loyalty of the troops to oppose Napoleon, allowing Bonaparte to reoccupy Paris and claim that he had found the crown of France lying in the gutter. Debate rages amongst historians as to whether Napoleon's return from power was enabled by the support of the people or was simply a coup made possible by the overwhelming loyalty of the army to their former emperor. On his return, Napoleon sought to present himself as a peaceful ruler. He ordered a series of reforms, abolishing feudalism, allowing freedom of the press, and creating a parliament-based government, all of which was designed to increase popular support for him. He also wrote to the European leaders, trying to convince them that he did not want war. And this has become a key element in a wider argument between researchers about whether or not Napoleon was a man of peace who had war forced upon him, or whether his offers for peace were simply devious ploys to gain time. Regardless of Napoleon's motives, and that's something you might want to discuss online, his requests for peace were rejected. As he returned to France, the leaders and diplomats of his former enemies were gathering in Vienna for a congress, which had been intended to create a new balance of power in Europe by redrawing the map. Instead, all the nations agreed to declare war on Napoleon, not France, and not to negotiate a separate peace settlement with him until it had been defeated once and for all. The War of the Seventh Coalition had just begun. For Napoleon, then, time was short. He knew that he was incapable of defeating the unified forces of the coalition powers. In this coalition, we're talking about Britain, Prussia, the Netherlands, Austria and Russia. In order to stand any chance at all, he therefore had to strike swiftly at his enemies before they gathered against him. Knowing that it would take time for the Russian and Austrian armies to march across the continent to France's borders, he set about rearming, creating a fresh army that was partly filled with war veterans who had rejoiced at his return and the prospect of restoring France to the glory of the height of the empire. The most appropriate target was the combined Anglo-Dutch force under Wellington and the Prussian force under Blücher, which had gathered in Belgium. If Napoleon could crush this army, or rather these two armies, march into Brussels and then take Belgium, he thought the other nations might hesitate and reconsider their commitment to war. On the road to Brussels, just 12 miles south of the city, is a small, seemingly insignificant town called Waterloo. It would prove to be one of the most important locations in European history. Yet in June 1815, Napoleon faced a problem. Although estimates vary, the army which Napoleon had gathered amounted to around 123,000 men, give or take, yet the Anglo-Dutch and Prussian forces combined amounted to somewhere in the region of 200,000 men. Napoleon knew that if he faced this unified force, his chances of winning a decisive victory were drastically reduced. He therefore adopted an incredibly bold strategy by making a daring lunge for Brussels down a gap between the two forces, the Anglo-Dutch army and the Prussian. His aim was to prise the two armies apart, forcing them to withdraw along their supply lines which ran in opposite directions to each other, the Anglo-Dutch towards Ostend and the Prussian towards Liège. With the two forces separated, he could then use the bulk of his army to encircle and crush the nearest force before turning on the other, 
defeating both in detail. It was an inspired plan. It very nearly worked. On the 15th of June, after having kept the French-Belgian border shut for days to prevent Wellington and Blücher hearing any rumours of French troops collecting in the area, Napoleon threw his army across the border and rapidly took Charleroi. His army then continued to push up the main road towards Brussels, closing in on a crossroads called Quatre Bras, which was a vital point of communication between Wellington and Blücher's forces. The French vanguard, under Marshal Ney, almost took the crossroads on the evening of the 15th, but encountered strong resistance from a force of Nassau infantrymen, who kept the French at bay until darkness fell. When news arrived in Brussels at the speed of the French advance, Wellington and many officers in the British army were at the ball that was being held by the Duchess of Richmond. The British, Dutch and Prussians had been taken completely by surprise. Their forces were scattered across southern Belgium and would need most of a day to gather, yet Napoleon was already just 20 miles from the Belgian capital, and Wellington was particularly concerned about the continued possibility that Napoleon would launch an attack around his flank, cutting him off from the Channel ports and his lines of communication. Nonetheless, with it rapidly becoming clear that this was not Napoleon's plan, Wellington hastily ordered his British and Dutch troops to gather at Quatre Bras, where he hoped to hold the French until his army had collected, and he could then take the initiative. Meanwhile, Blücher ordered his Prussians to Ligny, where he planned to do the same thing. The Battle of Quatre Bras was the smaller of two battles, which took place on the 16th of June, and ultimately descended into a bloody stalemate. Marshal Ney was ordered by Napoleon to take and hold the crossroads, yet the task was more challenging than it sounded. Ney needed time to allow his troops to move up from the positions where they'd camped the previous night, strung out along the road from the Belgian border. He dared not attack without his whole force, fearing Wellington's reputation for hiding men within the terrain. Wellington's reputation on the 16th of June equated to an entire army that wasn't actually there, as there were just 8,000 Allied troops in the area, facing approximately 25,000 Frenchmen. Nonetheless, the hesitation bought the Allies vital time in which to bring up the troops, which were desperately needed. When the attack began, at 2pm, the French made rapid progress. Initially, Wellington was not actually present, having ridden to meet Prussian commander Marshal Blücher in person to discuss their strategy. The Dutch troops holding the line at Gumillancourt, which is a farm uh, just to the south of the crossroads, um, and those troops included militia units, were pushed back, and by the time Wellington returned, at about 3pm, the French were advancing through the Bois de Bossu, which was on the Allied right flank, and preparing for a final assault on the Quatre Bras crossroads itself. At this crucial moment, a British division under General Picton arrived and were able to hold the Allied left flank whilst their centre rallied and more troops were pushed forward to face the French attack. Dutch cavalry were used to try and halt the French advance, but broke and fled. An attack by the Duke of Brunswick's cavalry were also driven back, and the Duke of Brunswick himself was killed trying to rally some of his infantrymen. By 5pm, however, another 8,000 reinforcements had reached Wellington, and he was able to resume the offensive. As British troops inched forward on the left flank, Ney received a letter from Napoleon, telling him that the fate of the campaign depended on his success at Quatre Bras. With the prospect of victory slipping through his fingers, they ordered an elite unit of cavalry, the Serassiers, to charge the Anglo-Dutch position. French cavalry briefly captured 
the crossroads. Two British battalions were caught by surprise and were badly mauled, and Wellington was even forced to jump his horse over a line of British soldiers in order to escape the cavalrymen pursuing him. However, the cavalry could not hold the crossroads on their own, and, suffering from Allied artillery fire, were pushed back. By 10pm, the Anglo-Dutch army had pushed the French back on all fronts, and halted along the line that they had occupied at the start of the battle. Quatre Bras had been a draw, but it had also been a costly one. The French lost 4,000 men in the battle, compared to an Allied loss of around 4,600. But, crucially from a strategic perspective, the French had been held back from the crossroads. How the campaign would unfold in the coming days would depend on the outcome of Napoleon's battle with the Prussians at Ligny. Whilst Ney engaged Wellington's force at Quatrebras, Napoleon was fighting a twin, equally important battle against the Prussian forces. Napoleon had been forced to delay his attack until he was sure that Wellington's forces were occupied at Quatrebras and therefore would not slip past Ney and attack Napoleon's army in the flank. The Prussians, meanwhile, had occupied a pre-arranged defensive line seven miles long behind the Ligny stream, a position which included Ligny, Saint-Armand and Saint-Bref. The position was an extremely open one, with gentle slopes providing the Prussians with little cover from artillery fire. When Wellington, having ridden from Quatrebras to meet Blücher, allegedly observed how exposed the troops were, he was supposedly haughtily told by General Neisenau, the Prussian chief of staff, our troops like to see the enemy. With 84,000 men, Blücher had a slim advantage in numbers over Napoleon's 78,000. However, he was content to wait after he and Wellington had agreed that the Anglo-Dutch force would march to join him if they weren't engaged at Quatrebras. In the meantime, Napoleon had devised a characteristically bold plan of attack. After softening up the Prussians with an artillery barrage, he would contain the Prussian left flank with one attack under Marshal Grouchy, whilst launching his main attack on the centre at Ligny, which would force Blücher to commit his reserves until Ney arrived, having, Napoleon presumed, swept aside the Anglo-Dutch force at Quatrebras. This would then encircle the Prussian force, crush them, and send the survivors reeling back towards Germany. The French bombardment of the Prussian positions began at 2.30pm, with Wellington's concerns about the exposed Prussian position proving to be well-founded. The French attacks made gradual progress, with Grouchy's men eventually threatening to break through at Saint-Bref. In the centre, the village of Ligny became the scene of fierce fighting, changing hands repeatedly over the course of the afternoon, with the burning buildings adding to the difficulties faced by both sides. The sudden arrival of Derlon's corps in the right rear of the French army led to a pause in proceedings due to the unexpected position of their appearance. Although Napoleon had summoned troops from Quatrebras, Derlon had appeared in a position where, if his troops had been hostile to the French, they could have dangerously threatened the entire French force. Crucially, time was wasted while scouts were sent to determine who those troops were, by which time Delon himself had received orders from Ney to march back to Quatrebras to help him in the attack against Wellington's men. The overall effect was that Delon's 12,000 Frenchmen spent the entire day marching back and forth between Quatrebras and Ligny with help, without helping either French force, where they could have been decisive in either one of the battles. Frustrated by the delay, Napoleon committed his elite Imperial Guard in attack on the centre at 7.30. The assault was a success and began to break the Prussians. Keen to prevent the retreat, which was now necessary, from turning into a rout, 
Blücher personally led Prussian cavalry units in attack to keep the French at bay. The cavalry brought the army a crucial hour, which prevented catastrophe for the Prussians, but in the process they were broken, with Blücher being unhorsed and even ridden over by his own men. With Blücher missing and the centre broken, the Prussian army now had no choice but to retreat. At this point, Meisenau made perhaps the most important decision in the campaign, by ordering a retreat towards Vav in order to be able to keep in touch with Wellington's forces, rather than pulling back to Jean Bleu, which would have provided an easier retreat route back towards Germany. Napoleon decided against pursuing the Prussians, as their flanks were still providing some strong resistance. Marshal Grouchy was ordered to pursue the Prussians in the morning, but no attempt was made to keep contact with the Prussian army overnight. This proved to be a crucial mistake, because Grouchy was therefore unaware that the bulk of the Prussian army had pulled back towards Vavre. In all, the French lost 12,000 casualties at Ligny, compared to Prussian losses of 24,000 men, including 8,000 deserters and 21 cannons. Crucially though, the Prussians had been defeated and had pulled back, leaving the Anglo-Dutch force exposed and open to attack. It seemed that Napoleon's grand strategy was starting to work. Little, if any, fighting took place on the morning of the 17th of June. As the Prussians continued to withdraw north towards Vav, Napoleon spent most of the morning letting his men rest and touring the battlefield at Ligny. He seems to have been unaware that the Anglo-Dutch army remained in its position at Bras. Wellington's forces, meanwhile, were equally unaware of what had happened at Ligny. After eventually learning of the direction of the Prussian withdrawal, Wellington ordered his own men to pull back from Bras to the ridge of Mont-Saint-Jean, just south of Waterloo. Ney's troops at Quatrebras were inactive for most of the day, and by the time Napoleon arrived at Quatrebras and ordered a full-scale attack, the bulk of Wellington's army had already slipped away. Over the course of the day, the French pursued the Allied force, being held back by British cavalry and artillery. The experimental rocket troop even saw action, although their erratic weapons, the Congreve rocket, had mixed results. The British were fortunate, since, as the French began their pursuit, the weather broke. Although the troops quickly became drenched in the storm, the rain-soaked ground prevented French cavalry from racing cross-country to attack the retreating column. As the evening drew in, the Anglo-Dutch force fired into its position on the now famous lines around Mont-Saint-Jean. Wellington knew the area well, having examined the position when travelling through the country the previous year. It offered a strong defensive line, with three forward positions at Hougoumont, La Haison and Papalot, anchoring and offering some protection to the main line. These positions were garrisoned with some high-quality units, with the majority of the infantry and all the cavalry being masked from view on the reverse slope of the Mont-Saint-Jean ridge. The French, meanwhile, deployed on a ridge of ground roughly parallel to the Allied one, with their centre at the inn of La Belle Alliance. However, Wellington only resolved to fight at Waterloo after receiving a guarantee from Blücher that the Prussians would march to his aid. That night, Wellington slept at an inn in Waterloo, whilst Napoleon set up his headquarters at the farmhouse of La Caillou, three kilometres to the south of La Belle Alliance, and both sites have since been turned into museums. That night, as the rain continued to fall into the early hours, neither army enjoyed much in the way of food, warmth, shelter or sleep. Few provisions were available, such was the speed with which both armies were having to move, 
and troops on both sides plundered what food they could from the surrounding landscape. Crucially though, the stage was set for the battle the following day. The final chapter of the Napoleonic Wars was about to begin. The ground chosen by Wellington for what would become known as the Battle of Waterloo was an extremely concentrated position. Barely three miles wide and with just one mile between the two ridges, it is sobering when visiting the site today to think that around 40,000 men from both sides were killed in an area that could be walked over in an afternoon. By dawn on the 18th of June, the rain from the previous day had finally stopped. Historians have fiercely debated the importance of that rain. The ground at Waterloo holds moisture, turning the soil into a clinging clay-like mud which slows the walker down. It's often been said that Napoleon delayed his attack to allow the ground to dry out and make manoeuvring easier. In reality, the additional time would have had little effect on the firmness of the ground, and the delay is more likely to have been to allow troops to move into position. The delay was welcomed by Wellington, for whom every passing moment brought the Prussians closer, though their progress was also impeded by the saturated ground and the steep landscape. Nonetheless, at around 11.30 the battle began, with Napoleon bombarding the Allied position. At the same time, he launched a feigned attack on Wellington's right, aiming to threaten the Chateau of Hougoumont and force Wellington to commit at least part of his reserves to reinforce it, before Napoleon would then launch his main attack on the centre. The plan backfired, as Wellington steadfastly refused to commit more men to the Chateau's defence than was ever necessary, not least because, for a lot of the time, they weren't actually needed. The attack on Hougoumont escalated into a siege within a battle. At one point, a group of French troops found their way into the complex's courtyard through a gate around the back, which had been left open to allow easy communication with the rest of the Allied army. In a heroic effort by the men which garrisoned the chateau, the gates were forced shut, and the French, trapped inside, were killed. Throughout the day, General Rail, the French commander in that section of the battlefield, poured thousands of men into the attack, but Hougoumont did not fall. Wellington's right flank remained secure. At around 1pm, Napoleon launched an entire corps under Durlon, which was meant to be his main attack on the Allied centre. The troops initially made good progress, pushing back the Dutch and some English troops positioned to the left of the main road uh, through the battlefield. At this crucial moment, however, the British Union and Household Heavy Cavalry Brigades were ordered forward by their commander, the Earl of Uxbridge, and they shattered Durlon's entire corps of 12,500 men. Elated by their own success, however, the Union and Household Cavalry charged all the way to the French position, where they were cut off by French hussars and lancers. They would play no further part in the battle, and the best of Wellington's cavalry had been decimated. Despite this setback for Wellington, it was actually Napoleon's position which was becoming more dangerous. As early as 1pm, he noticed Prussian troops heading towards the battlefield from the direction of Vavre, and sent Lebeau's corps to hold them off. By 4.30, the Prussians were advancing in force towards Plans Noir, a town in the rear of Napoleon's right flank, though their first attack on the town would not take place until 6pm. In the meantime, the French bombardment of the Allied line continued. At around 4pm, it is often said that Wellington pulled back some of the units on his right flank, in a move which Marshal Ney mistook for a withdrawal and launched a huge cavalry pursuit. In truth, the folds in the ground would have made it almost impossible for Ney to have made such an observation, but whatever the reason, between 4 and 6pm, 
5,000 French cavalry made a series of charges against Allied positions. Funneled into a tightly packed area about half a mile wide, thanks to the breakwaters of Hougoumont and Le Haisson, they were received by Allied infantry, which were calmly deployed in square formations, the best defence against cavalry during this period. Despite fierce determination from the French, who were bombarded by Allied artillery on their approach and found themselves in a maze of solid infantry formations, the Allies remained unbroken. Marshal Ney, who led the attack himself, had several horses shot from underneath him. Not for nothing was he known as the bravest of the brave. A window of opportunity, though, presented itself to Napoleon when the farm of La Haison in the Allied centre fell to the French in the afternoon, after the troops inside ran out of ammunition. However, the Prussians were now arriving in Plans Noir, and Napoleon was unable to provide Ney with the reinforcements for a combined infantry and cavalry attack on the British right. Fighting in Plants Noir continued until 8pm, with the village changing hands repeatedly. Napoleon was even forced to commit some of his elite old guard from the Imperial Guard to regain the village. Meanwhile, Prussian reinforcements had allowed Wellington to move units from the left flank to strengthen his centre, an utterly crucial development within the campaign that enabled the Allied line, the Anglo-Dutch line, to hold. Napoleon was now able, however, to post cannon within 300 yards of the Allied line, thanks to the fall of La Haison, and this opened the way for one final attack by units from the elite Imperial Guard. The Guard were Napoleon's best soldiers, with an exceptional record of success, and represented a desperate move by Napoleon to win the battle. His reserves were dwindling due to the pressure of the Prussians, and he could therefore only send forward eight battalions. They faced the British Guard, commanded by General Maitland, although it's claimed that Wellington himself gave the orders to the Guard, who had been told to lie flat to hide themselves from the French and take shelter from their artillery fire. Supposedly, Wellington iconically shouted, Now, Maitland! Now is your time! After an exchange of volleys and some vicious hand-to-hand fighting, the Imperial Guard broke. It is often said that guys of La Gare Recule caused the entire French army to flee. In truth, Wellington followed up the success against the Imperial Guard with a general advance with part of the right flank, whilst more Prussian troops arrived on the French left flank, creating a general panic. At the same time, the Prussians finally broke through at Plans Noir, where fighting had raged for hours, with the fiercest struggles taking place around the church in the centre of the village, which troops fought over whilst it was physically burning down. Attacked on all sides, the French army broke and ran with some remaining units from the Imperial Guard making a futile attempt to hold off the pursuing forces. At around 10pm, Wellington and Blücher met at La Belle Alliance, with Blücher remarking, Mein lieber Kamerad, quelle affaire! My dear friend, what an affair! The Battle of Waterloo was over. The Anglo-Dutch force had lost 15,000 men killed and wounded, the Prussians another 5,000, and the French had lost around 25,000 killed and wounded, with another 8,000 deserting. It had been an extremely bloody affair. As Wellington put it, next to a battle lost, there is nothing so melancholy as a battle won. Waterloo was not the only battle to take place on the 18th of June. Whilst Wellington, Napoleon and Blücher were grappling with one another at Mont-Saint-Jean, Grouchy's troops were engaging the Prussian rearguard under Thielman at Vavre. 
Thielman had just 15,000 men and 35 guns, with which to hold off Grouchy's 33,000 men and 96 guns, but crucially he was able to use the River Lamb as a line of defence. With skirmishing beginning at 3pm, reckless French attacks focusing on the Biaget Mill were easily beaten. Eventually, a flanking force was able to cross the river at Le Mal, where they pushed back a much smaller Prussian force. Although Grouchy tried to rush troops from Le Mal to Biaget, little could be achieved by nightfall, though fighting continued until about 11pm. Overnight, the Prussians heard of Waterloo and expected the French to withdraw, causing Thielman to launch an attack at 4am on the 19th. Although the French were surprised by this, since news of Waterloo hadn't reached them, they beat off the Prussian assault and, when Grouchy heard of the result of Waterloo at 10.30, he began withdrawing his force. Napoleon, meanwhile, had rushed south to Genappe on the evening of the 18th, hoping that he would be able to rally his army there. Quickly realising that the situation was hopeless, he recalled Grouchy and hurried back to Paris, hoping to be able to rally the country behind him whilst holding off the advancing British, Dutch and Prussian forces by regrouping his shattered army in northern France. This was not wishful thinking, as, including the remnants of his own broken army, he had 117,000 men who he could draw upon at relatively short notice, whilst another 150,000 conscripts were under training. It swiftly became clear, though, when he arrived in Paris, that the country had little appetite to fight on. The Senate and Chamber of Deputies of the French government united in opposing the Emperor's plans, with some even calling for his abdication. Napoleon's brother urged that all was not lost if he dared to believe. After briefly contemplating using the army to disband the government, Napoleon accepted defeat, declaring that he had dared only too much already, and abdicating on the 23rd of June. In the weeks that followed, he fled Paris to escape the vengeful Prussians, making his way to the Atlantic coast where he hoped to sail to America. However, the Royal Navy's ships blockading France's Atlantic ports made that impossible, and he therefore surrendered himself to the captain of HMS Bellerophon, hoping to take refuge in Britain. Napoleon never landed in Britain. The British government dared not allow him onto dry land, and his request to the French regent was therefore declined. He was sent into exile on St Helena, where he died of a perforated stomach, made worse by acute stomach cancer, in 1821. Historians have spent the last two centuries discussing and disputing almost every aspect of the Waterloo campaign. Over the next fortnight, I'll be releasing an exclusive sequence of interviews from experts from around the world, considering a vast range of the issues. Tomorrow, I'll be releasing the first in a triple bill of interviews looking at the forgotten foreign forces as I speak to Hayley Stewart about the King's German Legion. That, that will be followed on the 7th and 8th with discussions with Alithia Laspra about Spain and Vanya Bellinger about Prussia's involvement in the conflict. On the 9th of June, the focus will shift to look at what life was like for the ordinary soldier as Ed Koss and I explore the harsh realities of being a soldier during this period. And on the 10th, I'll be talking to Stuart Eve and Ben Mead from Waterloo Uncovered about the archaeology and the enduring question mark over human remains. On the 11th, I'm speaking to the author of the Peninsula War Saga novels, Lynn Bryant, about the challenges of writing about this period. And on the 12th, as we enter the second week of Waterloo Remembered, I'll be back with a piece on why Waterloo matters. On the 13th, I'm talking to Marcus Cribb, manager of Apsley House, and Robert Pocock, 
manager of the Campaigns and Culture Battlefield Tour Company, about the forgotten Battle of Waterloo. And on the 14th, the historians Gareth Glover and Andrew Field join me to explode some commonly held myths about the campaign. The 15th of June will see the tempo shift up a gear as the Voices of the Battlefield series gets underway. Ten readings of eyewitness testimony from the campaign will be released every single day on the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th. There are actually 11 on the 18th because there are 41 pieces of testimony that we've got recorded for you, one for every five years since the battle. It's one of the largest oral history projects that has ever been attempted for this period and has involved people from around the world. The live tweets about what was happening at key moments 205 years ago will also begin on the 15th via my Twitter account at ZWhiteHistory. And I'll be joined by the historian Will Fletcher again on the 15th as we discuss the mechanics of war, the three systems of command at Waterloo. The live tweets and voices of the battlefield continue on the 16th, 17th and 18th, with the 17th also featuring an interview with Jacqueline Reiter and Beatrice de Graff about Waterloo's legacy. Then, on the 205th anniversary of the battle itself, at 11 o'clock, Reverend Stephen Fletcher will livestream a memorial service via the Waterloo Association YouTube page, which the association has kindly offered to support the event. That will end with a one-minute silence at 11.30, the moment that the battle began to honour the fallen. Remember what I said at the start. You can get involved at every single stage, not only by listening to the Napoleonicist, but by having your say, asking your questions, sharing your memories and your family's stories. Remember to use the hashtag WaterlooRemembered on Twitter, and if you're heading to the forum, the address is www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. I'll be back tomorrow with the first of our exclusive interviews, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterloo Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, stay safe, and thank you for listening. Thank you.